And uh, we're finishing up this series, The Forgotten, where we have uh, looked at three of Jesus' parables this morning. And we'll be, uh, I just want you, I'll tell you this, where we're headed next week is the beginning of Advent season. And Advent, of course, means, uh, the, means coming, Jesus is coming. Uh, the Advent season remembers His first coming and then celebrates and looks forward to His, his second coming. And we're going to do a series, I'm pretty sure this is the name of it. Uh, I've got the scriptures picked out. I'm still working on the full series, but it's called Christmas with the Prophets. And we'll be looking at some of the prophets. And if, if all goes well, we may have a prophet or two visit us. We're talking like an Old Testament prophet or two visit us during this, this series and, and introduce what it was like to be a prophet. Nonetheless, that's not where we are now. We're finishing up our series and we're looking at the parables of Jesus. And today we're at the parable of the, it's called in different, the parable of the minas or parable of the pounds. Most of us have heard it that way. It's in Luke. Uh, it is kind of like the parable of the talents from Matthew, but a little bit different. So if you're in Luke, t- Luke 19, I hope you will just hold there for a moment. Uh, because you'll may notice, if you're there, that the story before that is about uh, when Jesus goes through Jericho and meets Zacchaeus, who is a tax collector. Everybody loves a parade, am I right? Especially if they're throwing out candy like they do at the July, 4th of July parade in Laverne. And uh, everybody loves a parade. So when Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and that, that happens uh, um, in Luke, I believe, around uh, chapter 9, he sets his face toward Jerusalem. As Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, momentum is building. People are getting excited because they think that Jesus is the Messiah and He will bring the kingdom of God. So when He and His entourage of disciples, and there were more than just twelve, as they are heading through the town of Jericho, people line the streets. It's packed. They want to see Jesus. And they're excited. There's anticipation. The kingdom of God, which means the end of the Romans, end of the bad guys, is almost here. Yay! And there's one person in particular who sneaks out and wants to see Jesus for a different reason. He's heard that this Jesus fellow likes the underdog. He hangs out with sinners. He hangs out with bad guys. Mainly for this gentleman, he heard that Jesus hangs out with and actually loves the outcasts, the one society doesn't like. And he happens to be one of those outcasts because here he is, he's trying to get a glimpse of Jesus And anytime someone in the crowd, they see him and they go, oh, there's that Zacchaeus again. And they kind of tighten ranks, you know. So you can almost picture Zacchaeus, whether he was truly, literally short or short in stature in the community, it couldn't be that. Whatever. Nobody liked him and he couldn't see Jesus. You can just see him hopping around. And so he does the thing that no self-respecting man does, at least while people are watching or any man that's afraid to fall as you get older. He climbs a tree. He climbs up the tree. He makes. He does make kind of a, a fool of himself. He doesn't care because he wants to see Jesus. And then the unexpected happens. The thing no one thought would happen. And, and least of all, I think we could say the thing Zacchaeus didn't think would happen. Jesus stops. He looks up and he sees Zacchaeus. He says, Zacchaeus, come down. Now, if that's all he said, you would think he was telling Zacchaeus not to be foolish and climb a tree. No, he says, Zacchaeus, come down because 
Today, I must stay at your house. That's in the text, by the way. We'll read the parable later, but I just want you to know that's part of the story. Today, I must stay at your house. That's Luke 19, verse 5. Some versions say, today it is necessary that I stay at your house. Isn't that a weird thing? Now, you, you've had people ask to stay at your house before. No one's ever said it like that, right? And, and so when Jesus says it, it sounds weird to our ears. Is it okay? Can I stay at your house? Can I spend the night at your house? Can I come over for dinner? Right? That's the proper way. But Jesus says, I must. And when he says that, it means that Zacchaeus has now become an integral and necessary, important, and critical part. That's the word I'm looking for. Zacchaeus has become a critical part. Lisa, you can come back up here. We don't, we don't mind. I know that um, the kids ended up going somewhere else. So, And you love having a front row view of, of your husband, don't you? <laughs> Let me help you out just a second. Talks amongst yourselves. There you go, love. So Zacchaeus is told, uh, ends up becoming a critical part of Jesus' story. That makes us curious, doesn't it? What's going on here? Why is this a must? We follow the story and we know what happens. Jesus ends up at Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus has dinner. That's the most intimate thing you could do in the first century. He could have a meal with someone. Zacchaeus has Jesus in his home and they, they talk and they, they get to know each other and, and he's listening to Jesus and they share this meal together and something incredible happens in Zacchaeus' life, in his heart, in his being. And he gets up from the dinner table and he says, I'm going to give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody anything, I'm going to repay them. I'm going to, I'm going to increase whatever I owe them. I'm going to make up for anything cheating I've done. And Jesus makes this statement. He says, today, salvation has come to this house. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Today, salvation has come to this house. Now, if you were one of those who were in the, in the crowd, if, if you were one of those, and by the way, when, when Jesus went to be at the home of Zacchaeus, the crowd didn't like it. They go, what? He's going to have dinner with this outcast. He's going to be with this sinner. But the bigger issue is when Jesus says, today salvation has come. Because if salvation has come, that means the kingdom of God in some way has shown up. The kingdom of God that all the Jewish people were looking for, that they were certain they were going to be a part of and was going to wipe out or get rid of Roman rule. So Jesus, if you're the true Messiah, how can you say salvation has come when we still have all these problems and, and we haven't been brought into something new? You see, Jesus knew that the crowds, that many of those following him, even his own disciples, had a grave misunderstanding about the kingdom of God and its true nature. He knew they just assumed because they were born Jewish or living in Judea or, or had gone through the rituals to be, to be a convert to Judaism, they would just be in. And that was wrong. He knew they assumed that the kingdom of God was just about getting rid of the bad guys so that our life could be more comfortable and pleasant and happy and peaceful. And because they had these wrong assumptions, this is why, and here's the big setup this morning, this is why Jesus decides to tell 
the parable that he tells us in Luke 19. Please, if you, if uh, there are Bibles in front of you, and if you don't have your Bible open yet, I would really love for you to read this uh, through with me. I'm reading in the NIV, the New International Version. I apologize, some of your versions are uh, in our pews are New Living Translation, so uh, do your best to follow along if you have that one. But I'm going to read the parable. Looking just at verse 11, chapter 19. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So instantly our minds understand Jesus is telling a parable to correct wrong assumptions about the coming kingdom of God. And we're invited into that group of people who may have, are you with me, some wrong assumptions about the coming kingdom of God. Verse 12, Jesus said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Now, just as a note, what's a mina? Or some of your versions say ten pounds. That was equal to about 100 days wages. So it's a lot of money. And if we want to put a dollar amount, it's probably safe to say uh, $25,000. Okay, we'll just say that, if that helps. But it was, it was an amount of money. And he said, put this money to work until I come back. But his subjects, now note, these aren't the servants. These are other subjects, those who lived in his community, hated him. And they sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir or Lord, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you do not put in and reap where you do not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Gracious, almighty God, what a challenging message. What a challenging parable. We pray that you would give us understanding so that in our understanding we might obey all your commands. Our good and mighty King, in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. I want to give you a word to begin this morning. If I, I forgot to get my whiteboard out, don't worry about it, Erwin. We'll work on it next week. But I was going to write just one word up here, and it's going to show up on the screen behind you. And that word is reversal. The kingdom of God marks, it brings reversal. And when reversal begins to happen, that's the beginning of the kingdom of God's coming. 
It is a reversal not of fortunes, but a reversal of the status quo, even of human thinking. So how does the kingdom of God's reversal begin? With God coming to earth, right? That doesn't happen. God's go to the heavens. God comes to earth. Suddenly the outcasts, like Zacchaeus, become the outstanding citizens. The unwelcome become welcome. The, the sinners become saints and the saints, in some cases, we find out are sinners. The beginning of the kingdom of God is marked by the great reversal Jesus brings. That's why sometimes his parables and his teachings are difficult to understand because we can't wrap our minds around the things that he is changing. The unloved are now loved and the unloving become loving. That's the great reversal that he's brought. So Jesus tells this, this parable. And it begins in a strange way because we, we really, uh, well, what does it mean? A noble goes away to be appointed king? I mean, that just doesn't happen in our day and age. Especially now we, we're in a democracy. So we know we have people that, in a sense, go away to get elected, right? But they don't become king. So I want to tell you, and I think I have a slide here, the, the situation, simply so we understand what's going on. Jesus has gone to be appointed king, but, but he will return one day. So if you were a Jew living in the first century and you heard this story, two things would come to mind, two names, Herod and Archelaus. Herod the Great. In 40 B.C., I know, oh, I didn't come to church to learn history, but it's good stuff. In 40 B.C., he wanted to be made king of the, of the of Jewish area at that time. Judea, we'll call it. And he had to go to Rome. So he went to Rome, not a king. He went and got permission at that time from the Roman Senate. And he came back and he was now king. Ah, so when Jesus tells his parable, they, they got history. They think about it. Then after Herod died in around 4 B.C., his son, I had two sons, Antipas and then Archelaus. Archelaus wants to be king. Nobody wants him to be king because he's cruel. And he's, he's as bad as his dad, perhaps worse. So he goes to Rome, this time to, to go before Caesar Augustus. And they send a delegation <laughs> after him. And it was really made up of his family and particularly his brother Antipas. We don't want this guy to be king. And so he begs and makes his case and all this stuff happens. And, and Augustus doesn't make him king. He makes him, I think the word is tectarch. Makes, he appoints him as some type of governor and sends him back. And when he gets back, his brother's been appointed governor in another province. But when he gets back, he takes care of some of his enemies. So now that you hear the historical context of the situation, now we understand Jesus is telling him a story of a nobleman who goes away to be made king, and they get that in their context. Make sense? For us, it means Jesus, who has ascended to the Father, has been made king, and he is going to come back one day. And when he comes back, he will have dealings, if you will, with us. Now, I know in this parable, the master sounds harsh, and he is, in a sense, harsh. And we're going to have to deal with that. It probably won't be till the end, but, but just listen to how Jesus lays this out. And keep in mind, he wants to correct our misunderstandings about the kingdom. The kingdom doesn't bring the status quo or lift us up, it brings a reversal that we have yet to fully imagine. 
And in his parable, we're going to break it down this way this morning. In his parable, we find three kinds of people. You see them in there? Three kinds of people. There are haters, there are those looking forward to Jesus' return, and there are those that are not looking at all. And so we begin with, with the haters. This is not personal hatred. It's not that they hate this master. And by the way, when Jesus said he's of noble birth, that means, don't, it's hard for us Americans to hear anybody who's born of noble birth. We always think of King George, do we not? Or maybe we, the younger generation doesn't. I do, because we learn so much about the revolution. So you didn't think good things about those who were born of noble birth. But when Jesus says it, he means it in a good way. This man was born of noble birth. But there were people who hated him. Not a personal hatred. Read the text carefully and you'll see that it was a hatred of his rule. They did not like his kingship or the way that his kingdom would be run. Why? What's their problem? Well, we have a clue in verse 13. What's this noble man do? He calls his slaves to him and he entrusts them with his riches. He calls his slaves and he gives them and makes them stewards and says, here's somebody, I'm not going to be here to watch over you. I'm just going to entrust you with this. His wealth, he gives to his slaves and entrusts to them. If he's doing that as a nobleman, what's he going to do when he becomes king? <laughs> Is he going to make this the law of the land? Is this the way it's going to be? We want, we want to protect our riches. We want him to, to build things in our community with his riches. We want it to be passed on to, to his children. His children want it to be passed on to them, not given to his servants. So you begin to understand why they hated him. They did not like the reversal, the type of king or kingdom he would bring if he were made king. As the Herods, father and, and sons, were brutal to the whole population, Jesus will be brutal to the religious establishment that keeps people out of His kingdom. He will be brutal to, to economic systems, if you will, that don't care for those who are poor. He will be brutal to um, social structures that keep the outcasts outside and unwelcome. Now, now, the big problem here is this. We read this and we go, well, that's not me because I don't hate Jesus. Right? Well, I'm not a hater because I don't hate Jesus. But it's not about hating the Master. It's not about hating Jesus. It's about hating... Maybe we'll use a lighter term. Disliking His commands. And when I say... Have you ever found yourself in a place where you know God wants you to do one thing and you don't want to do it? Now you can identify. I can identify. <laughs> we love Jesus, but His rule, His kingdom, His commands, His kingship, that, well, I kind of wish you could vote sometimes, huh? <laughs> do you hate, do you dislike His commands and the changes that He brings and the true nature of His kingdom. He says to you and He says to me, go, right? Go serve others. Go minister in our world. Go and, and help those who need help. Go and seek My will over your comfort. Go and seek My will and do My will over your prosperity. 
Go and do the uncomfortable thing. And now, are you with me? Do you feel the hate a little bit? <laughs> oh man, when I was a youth pastor, one of the things I had to do was to go uh, on high school campuses and junior high campuses. But actually, junior high campus is a lot easier, but I had to go to the high school campus and visit students. I say had to. It wasn't really part of my job description. I just knew I needed to do it. And I hated it. I knew God wanted me to do it. I've told you the story. The first time I went and got permission to be on campus, I got at one of the moms of the youth group um, to talk to the principal, and then he, I had to meet with him. And, and um, he said, okay, you can come on, but no proselytizing. And I said, yes, sir. And I went home and looked up the word proselytizing. I had no idea what that meant. <laughs> and I had a weekly routine when I would go, and I, found, I ended up with, uh, when I got on campus, and there were certain students, I ended up finding out where they, they hung out, and I would go and just, just talk to them because I knew God wanted me to do that. 20 years later, we were at a reunion at the, at the church and some of those students show up and they say, oh, we used to hide from you. <laughs> what? These were the church kids, not the non-church kids. They said, we used to hide from you. We heard you were coming on campus. It's funny because I noticed sometimes they wouldn't be in their normal spots, but I knew their secondary spots. So I would go to them and usually end up finding them. I'm glad I didn't know... 20 years before what I found out 20 years later. It was just as uncomfortable for them to have a representative of God's kingdom on campus as it was for me to go and do that. But if you love Jesus, you can hate His commands <laughs> and still obey. Huh? I was uh, in a restaurant a few weeks ago. Actually, I'm sorry, it's a few months ago now. And... Um, it's one of these open-air restaurants. It wasn't closed. I was sitting by myself, and, and I heard someone, uh, a gentleman, complaining about his church. And, of course, my ears perked up because I'm a pastor, and he was loud. And he was complaining about the change they were making. And then he mentions the name of the church. And I know this church, and in my mind, it was a good church. And when I hear him saying these things, I'm worried. Oh, no, that's a good church. What's going on? What's going on? And then as I listened, I know, probably shouldn't have, but I did. As I listened, I heard he was complaining about kingdom reversal things what they were doing to, to reach their community, what they, they were doing and the sacrifices they're making, the changes that were being made to welcome people and make the people who might not normally feel welcome in the church welcome. And I realized he hated the kingdom. If you asked him, do you love Jesus? He said, yes. Do you love the church? He would have said, yes. That's what I'm trying to do, protect the church. Then you don't understand. You need to go back to Luke 19. Because Jesus is blessing and saying salvation will be coming to many through your church because they are doing the work of kingdom reversal. I, uh, I brought my list here with me. I've been giving this out to us. And if you need another copy, we, we did this thing a while back called Every Soul Has a Name. And I've been praying through this list. And some of you have names. Some of you wrote your name on a piece of paper. And next to it, you wrote the name of a non-believer who you want to know to be, come to know Jesus Christ. And I, and I warn, don't put your name or their name on this list. And we're not passing this out to everyone. We're just keeping it in the family. But don't put your name on here unless you're willing to do the uncomfortable thing. We, we said we're going to pray these two ways. We're going to pray, pray Colossians 4.3 that God would give us opportunity to speak to that person. And we're going to pray Ephesians 6.19 that God would give us then words to speak when we talk to that person. And we're used to, not, we're used to this. When, when it comes to praying for someone's salvation, we're used to praying, Lord, bring someone into so-and-so's life. 
so that they can hear your word. Like, we're not going to do that. I mean, that's okay. You can pray that, especially if they're far away. But for this one person, it's, Lord, use me. Help me to pick up the phone. Help me to send the email to make an appointment to talk to. And, and I've shared this with some of you. When I, when I did this, I, I, I'll, I'll be honest. You know how God convicts me? When I give you a challenge... I don't do it just to challenge you. I do it because I won't do it unless I want you to do it because I expect you to say, I'm not going to do it unless he's going to do it. And so I'm telling you, I'm doing it. And I didn't do it as quickly as some of you. I'll just confess. Some of you got right on it and started calling your people up. I, I delayed because it's uncomfortable. Because I don't like, at times, the rule of Christ in my life. But I know it's good. And God has, has blessed. Uh, the one gentleman I name I put down, we've gotten together uh, twice now since this list. And he said he'd read, start reading the New Testament. And he wants to get together again. And, 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 and when it says Ephesians 6.19, you know, God, give me words to speak forth your, or to, to share the mysteries of Christ. I was literally praying like that when I'm talking to him. He's saying all these things and where he is in his faith. And he, he said he's an atheist, but he's a really bad atheist, you know. <laughs> Good atheists don't care about the church. Bad atheists have arguments with the church, like it has to go away. Like, well, if it's, there's no God, what do you care, right? Uh, and God was giving me just simple things to say. And one thing I said, well, maybe the Jesus you've rejected isn't the Jesus of the New Testament. You know, you say something, oh, that sounds cool, but there's no way that's as cool as it sounded because it came out of my lips, <laughs> He goes, huh, I hadn't thought of that. So he said he'd start reading. We'll see where that goes. But that's what it means to be a hater, to hate and reject God's rule over life. The second type of person here is this. Those looking forward to Jesus' return. We see these two servants. Don't you wish you had been there to see the face of the Master? Well done. Did you wish you'd been there to see their faces too, glowing to hear uh, the Master who they love say that to them. And when Jesus returns, listen, He will call us to account. He's no nonsense about that. He will measure our faithfulness. He who has entrusted us with much, with His Word, with gifts, with life, with relationships, He will expect much of us. Some think, oh no, I'm not sure I want that to happen. But listen carefully to the story. First of all, each of these two servants, and the third servant does as well, says, Lord, excuse me. In, in the NIV, it says, Sir. In other versions, it says, Lord. But they all address him as Lord. Right? There's respect. There's, there's really love behind that as well. Secondly, notice they say, Your mina, your money has earned this. Let me see if I, I can find it here. In my, the first one came, verse 18, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. He doesn't, and neither does the second, say, Look what I did. Look how I earned money for, for you. He says, Your money has earned. That's a weird way to say it, huh? Look what your money has done. And I point that out because Jesus, the Master here, is not measuring what they produced. He's not measuring how successful they were. That throws a lot of us off when we read the, the parable of the talents in Matthew and this parable of the pounds. He's measuring their faithfulness. God did the work. 
they went out and, and they were faithful to do their work and the work of bringing success, the work of reaching the goal, the work of bringing um, fruit, right? That came from God. I want you to hold on to that idea. It's important. And the Master says back to them, well done, because He was trustworthy. This is in verse 17. You have been trustworthy. And He's rewarded with ten cities. And the one who uh, gained five was rewarded with five cities. They weren't doing it for the reward. They weren't doing it for the bonus. They were being responsible. And now that the nobleman was a king, he had more than minus to give. What's he have to give out now? I used to just give minus. I used to, that sounds like minus. I used to just give 100 days wages. I used to just give $25,000. Now I'm giving whole cities. <laughs> now you're in charge. They wanted more responsibility. They wanted more opportunities to be, to be faithful. God causes the growth in His economy. Sometimes we have read these parables through the eyes of capitalism. And in capitalism, your value, your worth is measured by what you produce. Right? If you get more, if you gain more, if you build more, if you succeed, then you're considered valuable. That works in capitalism, but God is, is not working through the economy. He has His own economy going on. And He measures things by faithfulness because faithfulness... God works through faithfulness, always brings about some type of fruitfulness. Remember he said, my word does not go out void. God brings it about. And what's happened sometimes in the church when we read these parables, we go, wow, I could never produce ten more. I could never produce five more. That's for those other people who can do that stuff. <laughs> That's for those who are called into that. That's for those, those special people. Uh-uh. He's calling servants to do that. He didn't call the other noblemen. He didn't call um, other people in the town to do this. He didn't call the specialized investors. He called His servants. Because what He measures is our faithfulness. Will we hear His command and do what He wants us to do? At least try. That is faithfulness. I want to just take a, a side note at this, this point um, and, and ask this question. What is the measure of our self-worth? In this world, what's the measure of our, our self-worth? And, and uh, I'm not discounting because I, I think women are involved in this, but I, I specifically want to address this to men because one thing that's happening in America and it's kind of under underground right now. We don't really we're not focused on it. I don't know know why. Is that men, especially white middle aged men, are committing suicide at a much higher rate than normal. And, and no one's asking the question, or they're not asking it. A lot of people aren't asking what's going on. And there was a, a reporter from British, the BBC Broadcasting Company, and and some of you who are in our church and get our men, my men's little invitation to our men's group, I sent this out to. Uh, she. It took someone from, uh, you know, BBC, not someone from American um, media. She goes to Montana and she begins asking questions. She does some other research and, and finds out uh, there are different factors. One factor is men are uh, they're losing jobs and don't have a way to replace it. But the main factor she discovers is loneliness. They have isolated themselves. And began to think of that in this in this this passage. In the story of Zacchaeus, he was a loner. 
Now, Jewish people, it was rare, committed suicide. But I, but I wonder if he was not at least inching closer to that in his loneliness. I mean, he was a successful businessman. But he was ostracized. And, and, and men, I, I call us to this one. We need each other to be encouraged in a world that measures our self-worth by what we produce or how, how much we can brag about. <laughs> We need to be encouraged that our self-worth stands before God and what He has done for us in, in Christ. That's where our value is in our Lord saying to us, well done. But secondly, I propose this. Men, this is part of the mission, the uncomfortable mission for those who are looking forward to Christ's return that we would obey His command to get out there and do what we can for the Zacchaeuses in our lives. Does that make sense? Because there are other men, and maybe ladies, you need to, to, if you have some, you need to reach out to and do your best. Maybe you need to call some of us men to get involved some way. I don't know. And I'm not just saying middle-aged men, to our young men too. There are those men who are ostracized and lonely. And maybe they're weird, maybe they're strange, maybe they're different. Maybe in your our minds, hey, there's a reason they've been ostracized. There's a reason they've been <laughs> alone. And that's just real. Being real, yeah, there's a reason. But nonetheless, those who look forward to the return of our Master have been entrusted with His grace and His love and His power to go and call them down from their trees or call them from behind the crowds or call them from behind whatever shelter they are in. That's part of what we've been entrusted with. Can you say amen to that? God measures our faithfulness to do the ministry He has entrusted, the rich ministry He's entrusted to us. Uh, finally, the third person here, the third type of person is this, those not looking. This is the third servant. Notice he begins with Lord or Sir. I was going to call him a name. I'll call him a turkey, right? He's pretending he really thinks of him as Lord, but he doesn't. But he has a warped view of the Master. You're distant, you're harsh, you're cruel. And it's, it's interesting, the Master doesn't correct, correct him. Alright, that's what you think? You think I'm harsh and cruel? Then if you really thought that, you would have at least put your money in a bank. Got me some interest on it. And he calls this man out. He calls him a, 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 a term, horrible term, wicked. He says, you're wicked. Remember the other two? Faithful. Trustworthy. This one, he says, you are wicked. Because, you know, you show up for work like the rest. You pretend you're going to do the work and, and the investments of the master. But instead of getting out there and doing what I've asked you to do, here's the big word. You sit. <laughs> right? That's what he did. He said, you see, he, you know, it was like, I got this coin. I don't want to go out there and do any work. You know, part of the reason there are a lot of people who don't like my master out there. If I start doing his work out there, they're really going to get on my case. So I'm just going to sit here and kind of hedge my bet and, and I'll keep my coin nice and clean and precious or my 25000 whatever it is, and I'll wrap it in cloth so that when he, it, we, he returns, or me thinking if he returns, at least can say, hey, at least I got what you originally gave me. But God didn't give us that to sit and stare at and, and note how beautiful it was. The Master had given it to him to get out there and to do his will. This third, those not looking, have all kinds of opinions about God. 
Did you notice that? You know, all kinds of opinions about the Master, but there, there's no substance to them. They're like people who think, well, God is this and God is that, but they've never really actually looked to see what God is like. All kinds of opinions about what the Bible says. So I had a friend who's a pastor who says, you know, I hear people tell me, hey, there's all kinds of contradictions in the Bible, and I like to ask them this. He says, well, show me one. And many times they can't because they have these opinions, but they've never gone to look for it. And if you have an opinion about God, but you haven't found it substantiated or underlined or in Scripture, if you have an opinion about God, either positive or negative, I would say to you, hmm, how do you know it's true? And if you have opinions about God that's harsh or uh, that He's cruel, notice He doesn't reject. <laughs> but I would say this to you. What are you doing to find out if it is the truth? Because you may find out, as these other two did, that the God who we serve is just the opposite of this man's opinion. It's full of Kindness and generosity. And as soon as I say that, we say, wait a minute, you haven't read the rest of the parable. He took everything from this guy, did he? He knew he couldn't entrust this man with anymore, so he took what he had. But what happens to the third servant? What's his punishment? Anybody see it there? It's not mentioned, is it? We just know that he would no longer be trusted with his gifts, but it doesn't say that he was punished in any way. Ah, but he did punish those enemies of his. Well, did he? What does it say in verse 27? Those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them. He orders it to be done, but we never see it actually done in the parable. If it were already done, then the parable would read, he had them killed. But it says, it says, kill them. We're left wondering, and Jesus does this in a lot of his parables, we're left wondering what happened. How many of you know the parable of the prodigal son? All right, at the end of the prodigal son, there's the older brother, and the father comes out and says, hey, your brother's been brought back from the dead. Come and celebrate. And then we're left. We don't hear the brother's answer, do we? We're left wondering, does he go? It's, it's, it's like a, 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 at the end of the television season, you have a cliffhanger, right? And you're ticked off because you want to know what happens. And Jesus does that. He wants us to wonder why. This is a parable. It's a story. Why does he leave a cliffhanger here? Wondering what happened to the third servant. Wondering what happened to these enemies of his. Because he's inviting those who are the third servant. He's inviting those who are his enemies to repent. That's mercy. He's inviting them to escape the judgment, the wrath that's going to come. In the end, we see this master is nothing like the third servant thinks or the enemies think. He is full of mercy and grace. And that mercy that God has given to us is part of the investment. Or we could say is another part of the investment God has placed in us. We have been entrusted with much. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have salvation, you've been entrusted with much. And we've been called to take a risk. All faithfulness is risky. All faithfulness, the thing that God rewards, rewards excuse me, requires a risk because there are those out there who don't like Him or His rule over our lives. 
But the question we end with today is simply this. You have been entrusted with much. What will you do? You don't have to worry about the results. I don't know about you when I hear that. I'm almost like, oh, burden relieved. You don't have to worry about the results. You've been entrusted with much. What will you do? Would you stand with me as we close in prayer as the worship team comes forward to lead us in a closing song?